are. There we are. It's a technically challenging morning on Behind the Lens today, people. Welcome, welcome. We are back. As you know, we weren't here last week. We were not laboring on Labor Day. Of course, I think Pam and I were both laboring just elsewhere and not here. But we are back as we head into this final final quarter of 2019 and what is going to be a very busy, busy, busy time with movies. If what has been happening at Venice and Telluride and Toronto is any indication of what is to come for awards this year. But before any of those films trickle their way down to us, we've got a lot more. We have a lot of other films and filmmakers to talk about. Welcome. If you don't realize it, you're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the filmmakers of big films, small films, uh, television, big screen, little screen. Uh, we talk to the directors, the producers, distributors on occasion, uh, writers, sound guys, production designers, costumers, you hear, and, and talent uh, in front of the camera. And we're already, I can tell you this right now, we're already booking talent in November. Yeah, Pam's face now. My, my wonderful engineer, Pam, she's making a face. She's utterly shocked. Yes, we are booking into November already. And I can tell you right now, we have some exciting guests coming up in the, uh, over the course of September and October, including one of my all-time favorite actors, Brett Cullen, is going to be joining us uh, in a few weeks, so at the end of September. So I'm very, very excited about that. But we've got some very exciting guests today on Behind the Lens that... It's just fabulous. They've both been here before. Uh, the one, this is his third appearance on the show. The other, this is her second. Uh, joining us today are going to be Quincy Rose talking about his new film, The Narcissist. And he was here previously for his films, Miles to Go, and the comedic joy of friends effing friends effing friends. Uh, I think I got in enough effings in there. And then Michelle Remsen is back with us. She was here while her film Toss It was on the festival circuit. She now has distribution. The film is coming out so everyone can see it. Uh, I'm very excited to have both of them back. Uh, two films deal, talk about relationships. Two films, totally different perspectives. Two totally different filmmaking voices. But the end result with both of these films is both are immensely enjoyable and well-done filmmaking. So I'm really thrilled that Quincy and Michelle are back with us today. Um, but before we get to them, there's another film that's out right now. It's a very important film. It's one of the most important films that I think any of us can see in the current, given the current political climate globally. The film is Official Secrets from Gavin Hood, writer-director Gavin Hood, and his co-writers Gregory Bernstein and Sarah Bernstein. Um, Gavin takes us back to 2003, uh, before the start of the Gulf War, uh, and takes a look at an event that 
involved Catherine Gunn, a worker at the government communication headquarters in London. Uh, after the events, a book was written, The Spy Who Tried to Stop a War. Catherine essentially worked for the GCHQ, was essentially a spy agency, surveying messages, phone calls, emails, things like that. In 2003, one such message was disseminated to everybody at GCHQ that spoke about the United States and Great Britain, Bush and, and Tony Blair, uh, trying to essentially coerce uh, smaller countries, um, members of the United Nations, into signing a declaration of war against Iraq. Um, there are only two ways that you can go to war. One is under for a global scale, such as uh, such as what eventually happened. Uh, you have to issue a declaration of war, which needs to be ratified by the UN Security Council, um, or you ha- it must be under imminent threat. As we all, as now, twenty twenty hindsight, we all know. The basis it was given to go to war was weapons of mass destruction because they couldn't, the United States and Britain could not get enough signatories at the UN to go along with a declaration of war. So they went for option B uh, weapons of mass destruction posing an imminent threat to the entire world. Catherine Gunn was so disturbed by the memorandum that she received, that she managed to, through various channels, get it to a member of the press, uh, to reporter Martin Bright. Martin Bright, his colleague, Peter Beaumont, uh, and uh, Ed Volamy, they went on a fact-finding mission. And the paper... The Observer actually went and they ran the story on this memo. It exploded into a huge thing. Um, She was, Catherine was eventually charged, arrested, represented by Ben Emerson. Um, It took a year, which actually is quite quick, but it was a year from the discovery of this memorandum to the trial that was scheduled in 2004 with the revelatory case dismissed without the matter going to trial. This film explores the scenario event, of events, and it tells it something that Gavin does, that the book upon which the film is based was only told through Catherine's point of view. Here, Gavin tells this story So we have a multiplicity of perspectives that are happening concurrently. We're seeing what Martin is doing. As a a journalist, as an investigative journalist, we're seeing what Martin is doing while Catherine is sweating bullets over what's going to happen with her life, with her husband, who is Muslim. Um, Her whole marriage was affected, everyone she knows. So it took a lot of courage for her to to disclose what she knew and to turn this memo over. But we see Catherine's perspective. We see Martin's perspective. We have Peter. Uh, We have Ed. And, of course, then 
once she gets arrested, then we get Ben Emerson's legal perspective. So we see this is a multi-pronged thing. This wasn't just one person. This was multi-pronged people investigating to get to the truth of the matter. Gavin Hood does an incredible job with these political thrillers, these psychological thrillers like nobody else can. Take a look at some of his earlier films, Totsi, uh, that dealt with apartheid. Uh, a Reasonable Man, Eye in the Sky, his most recent film before Official Secrets, uh, a stunning, stunning film with Helen Mirren, Alan Rickman, Aaron Paul, and of course Ender's Game. Many people might not be fond of that movie. I personally think it was exceedingly well done. And the story there again, it addresses these issues that involve moral and ethical implications, as Official Secrets does. One of the great things that Gavin does with Official Secrets is working with his cinematographer, Florian Hofmeister, uh, is they elected to not go with the cloak-and-dagger-type lighting that you normally expect to find in a film of this nature. Uh, it was a conscious decision not to do so because... As you will hear Gavin in our exclusive interview, this excerpt from our interview, as he discusses this, what he wants people to be able to see, the wheels turning in Catherine's head as she's debating what to do, as she's basically playing a game of chess with the, with the government, uh, trying to stay one step ahead of them and be the one to finally call checkmate. Um, so, so much of this boils down to what Gavin and Florian do from a technical standpoint with their storytelling. Uh, so we're going to run clip two, Pam. So rather than get into the whole political backstory, we're going to go backwards today and we're going to take a listen to this as Gavin Hood talks with me about visually adapting the book to bring us Catherine Gunn's story in Official Secrets. Got to ask you about what you and Florian came up with from your visual perspective, because what you do, you have no cloak and dagger lighting that we would normally expect with a film like this. Yeah. You rely on creating intense emotional intensity, not just through performance, but with your framing with these close-ups on occasion, yeah. some, some ECUs. Yeah. But the way you move the camera, the, the intensity just builds. Uh, well, thank you for that, because it's, it's a very, very kind observation, because there are some who feel that I didn't give it enough cloak and dagger, right? I can understand that. Like, you make it a thriller, is why is the lighting darker? No, I didn't. I felt I was making about a story about a person who is fundamentally honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, fundamentally at her core, she's a moral beacon. And the more you try and hype up what she went through through you know spooky lighting and excessively sort of spooky music i thought we would just get caught out as being manipulative so the question was how can we record and i'm glad you bring up the close-ups and the tiny little moves around catherine but the, i asked catherine uh, kira knightley and the actors to generally we play the eyeline very very tight to lens so you the audience that was the choice we're going to use 75 more lens for our close-ups 
eye lines tight to lens so we can really look into those actors' eyes. And now you're really betting on your actors, not on your artifice as a lighting person, not on your, you know, spooky music. No, we're not going to take that route. We're going to trust Kira Knightley and Ben Emerson and Ray Fiennes and Matt Smith to deliver honest emotional performances. And we're going to get in there with that lens and be there to record it in detail so that i love the moment when catherine for example is struggling to decide whether to go and print the memo if that close-up lasts for about 10 seconds i think i'm actually mm-hmm. tried it, but it, it's quite long and it just tracks slightly 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 but we allow the actress i said kira there's no rush here the cogs i want to watch the cogs turning the minute the cog has turned you have to leave or you'll look like you're indulging but let the cogs turn, and I will just shoot it, and I'll get out of the way. And 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 with actors as good as these actors, it seems to me that it would be you know unfair on a performance-driven film that is heavy on dialogue to get tricksy with the camera, as opposed to you know framing the shots well, composing them well, lighting them well, but lighting them so that the audience actually can see the cogs turning in the eyes of the actor. Mm-hmm. That was the kind of way we did it, and not to, so of course we want beautifully composed shots, but I didn't want to be tricksy. I just felt it would come across as like trying to hype it up. Mm-hmm. Any, um, any... Trust the audience to just watch the actors, and maybe and some people might accuse me of that. Well, that was too simple, but we deliberately chose that. That and, and let's also be honest, we had to shoot the thing, you know, on a tight budget in limited days. You start wasting time trying to be tricksy. <laughs> you lose time to get good performance. The main thing was this film is is dialogue driven Mm -hmm. the thrill is in watching the characters outsmart each other when she talks to that interrogator and he says you can't talk to a lawyer and and she listens at the end we're on her through a lot of his speech just trusting kira as the cogs again turn until she says i um i will not speak to a lawyer unless i am charged tell that to gchq I mean, that one moment. Beautiful, you, you know, you, you've given me this half hour of interrogation and here's my answer. You don't want me to talk to a lawyer? Fine, don't charge me. But that's why you don't want to be like like spooky lighting here in that moment because you want to see her. And that meant in the edit room, Megan goes, you know what? You know, normally you cut back and forward between the actress listening and the speech that's going on. In fact, and, and Peter's a great actor, so his speech is good, but we're off him on the camera through most of his speech as she hears, as we are hearing, what the hell would I do? And we see her going, what the hell is she going to do? She's totally boxed in. And then she comes up with this line, which gets her out. Mm-hmm. So it was just, for me, the mantra was, I've overstated it, but it was make sure that we don't shortchange the audience on watching these great performances and let's not hype a story about a person who is fundamentally you know, grounded and honest and not full of hyperbole. And, and of course... So it worked, but that was the idea. So whether it works, is for you to judge. Gavin, as right. always, a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, I can't David. wait Lovely to talk to you again. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for that last one because, you know, very few people have picked up on that so it's always nice to say that was, a, that was an answer I haven't given often. I've, I've said other close-ups, but not... It was a nice question. Thank oh. you. Oh, And that was Gavin Hood. If we have time later in the show, you'll hear more from my exclusive with Gavin. And, you know, just to clarify for him, the memo that Catherine Gunn did see came from the NSA. Uh, And that's what sparked her entire story and why this story has not been told before now. 
uh, in film. Who knows? But I'm glad that Gavin Hood is the one that is telling it now. And it's so worth seeing. And now, I'm so happy we have Quincy Rose with us. Hello, Quincy. Hi, Debbie. I pray that my phone sounds okay. So far, you sound fine. Good. Very good. I Unfortunately, I don't have access to a landline at the moment. So I thought, uh, let's just hope AT&T is on their game today. Okay, well, let me, let's put it this way. After we've had satellite fails with calls coming from Ecuador, and it, it, you sound fabulous. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> How are you? And thank you for having me on the show again today. Oh, my God. I'm thrilled to have always, always, Quincy. You know I'm a huge supporter of your work, and I love your work. And I, gotta, yeah. I have to tell you. The, the narcissist or the narcissist, uh, however you want to pronounce it, this is a funny film. <laughs> oh, thank you. This is a funny film. We've got a film within a film. And I love the design of this. We have two, be- two sets of best friends, the female and the male, as they walk around New York. And all of this is being described initially by our filmmaker, who sees himself in the film as a character, Oliver. And so we have Oliver and his bestie, Max, walking around talking. We have Oliver's girlfriend that he's, quote unquote, on a break with. There must have been a Ross and Rachel inspiration in here somewhere. Uh, so we have Cassie and her bestie Letty. They're walking around other parts of New York talking, and the way that and the way you've constructed this with your beautiful cinematography, Jason Krangle's cinematography is gorgeous. For the most part, you keep the camera at a distance, so we're seeing life go by. And everything, the mundane things that happen every day, birds tweeting, buses, you know, blowing, blowing soot uh, out their exhaust, people walking. Yeah. And yet your sound design then, it's like we're all wearing a miracle ear and are right there next to our two sets, our two couples of people listening to what's being said crystal clear. That I found so striking so fascinating and engaging. What led you to this to this great design? And the fact that you start the film in quote unquote real life in black and white, and then you bring color in as Oliver is telling this story as to what he wants to make a film about, and it's that story that then becomes color. It just on yeah. so many levels, Quincy. I love this. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that you did. And um, as you mentioned, Jason Krangle, the cinematographer, uh, he's a wonderful cinematographer. He's also uh, accustomed to working in the documentary world and in the traveling documentary world where he has to be his own entire team. Um, So I knew he would be capable of shooting New York with no light and just using natural light and keep it comfortable and give us a great aesthetic, you know, with what I was trying to achieve. And then as you pointed out, the sound was so important. 
Rob Ellenberg, who did the sound, I've worked with him in the past on smaller projects, and uh, he actually shot my, he, he was the sound person on my, my girlfriend Angelica Zola's film, uh, Trauma is a Time Machine, which comes out later this month, and it's beautiful, but that's another film. But um, Rob is just great. He's a team worker, and he's a problem solver. And when I said to him, I'm going to want to be shooting a lot of these scenes from a big distance, so you're either going to have to be hidden somewhere or, you know, we got to figure something out. He was up for the challenge. And, um, you know, most sound people would want to follow you as you walk that far away and use a boom and something else. So we had to come up with a little game plan to be able to extend the range for the uh, ability to talk from a further distance, which we did. And we played right within the range, right up to the, the borderline. But I did it that way for a few reasons. One was to be able to shoot scenes in, in, in their entirety, mm-hmm. which allows a dramatic or comedic, you know, dramatic uh, uh, exchange to take place wholeheartedly instead of being cut up and shot in many different angles. It also allowed for me, as the filmmaker of the film, within the film, within the film of all of it, to be able to shoot at a much quicker rate because... Part of the reason I made the film at all was, A, to make a film in New York, but also to make a film with total creative control where we could shoot it, you know, pretty quickly. And the only way you can do that, you got to start figuring out where am I going to be cutting down on. Mm -hmm. And um, it just occurred to me that if everybody did a scene in one take, if each scene was a single take, we could knock out tons of pages every day. Sure. It would just come down to getting it correct before we moved on. Um, and we did it. I, you know, it, 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 it came out how I uh, planned, and it's the first time I've really had what was on the page appear on the screen. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a difficult task as you're tasked with uh, bringing a film into fruition, you know. So, um, and I don't think anybody's ever usually satisfied, but this was a very satisfying uh, experience and a growing experience, and because of the previous films you mentioned, I had some experience there and I, I just put together a tiny little team of sound camera and me and one extra friend my friend Jason Kalikia to be kind of the all-around eyes and ears of what was going on and then the four actors which I'm also one of them uh, and and I'll just mention them real quickly and then let you get a word in edgewise but uh, um, for the for the on the women's side it was uh, Cassie and Letty you mentioned and Respectively, that's uh, Jessica D. Giovanni and uh, Augie Duke, who are both wonderful. And then uh, playing Max opposite my Oliver was Zachary Tijan, who you'll remember from um, Miles to Go. He played yes. Miles' best friend, uh, Sydney. And so, yeah, so it was just it was just a good team, a lot of luck, and a, I feel like an idea that could work for this exact film. And I'm so happy you loved it. Yeah. I mean, it just, and, you know, and I was so happy to see Zach again. He does the BFF really well, I have to say. Um, Well, he is one of my BFFs. Well. That really, you'll get that taste. This explains it then. But what I love when you say this, you know, this is really the first time that you're satisfied you see what was on the page, you know, end up on the screen. Let's talk about what was on the page because this dialogue is so sharp, yet so effortless and so honest. But what's very striking 
is the different tones in how the girls are talking and what they're talking about and how the guys are talking. Yes, it's established in both sets of uh, friends that Cassie and Oliver are on a break. Oliver there's cannot communicate with her until after 5 o'clock at night or, or some such thing. But, yeah. but the girls are more intent talking about um, these emotional statuses and cheating and, well, you know, you're, you're going out with your ex-boyfriend and blah, 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 and they're getting into the nitty-gritty, whereas the guys get into more existential things about the world. And yes. <laughs> not the mon- not forget about the relationship dynamic and the issues Oliver's having with Cassie. Really, when you listen to Max and Oliver talk, the crux of the discussion, the big question is not whether Oliver should stay with Cassie. It's, I want to keep my apartment, and this may be the only way I can do it. It's that apartment, <laughs> the apartment, that, that, this is, this is really where the guys are coming from, is the apartment. And the girls are talking more about, you know, is the sex any good? Is this one better? You know, the emotion. Do I see myself with him forever? You don't get that with the guys. And I love how you broke that out. Well, thank you. I mean, the, the script is, I mean, the film is entirely scripted, um, except in the end sequences of interviews mm-hmm. um, or where the interviews are. That is the only places where uh, all the actors improvise, but in accordance to what I was asking them, they were answering from their character's perspective. Right. Um, and it was important for me to have both of those elements because I shot the interviews for each character after, on the day that each actor was rapping, mm-hmm. uh, rapping out, I should say, so that meant they had no more uh, dialogue to have memorized, and they could reflect on everything they had memorized and where their character was coming from, what they decided, who their character was, et cetera, et cetera. And they could answer with, you know, filling it out with whatever honesty they wanted to add from their own personal experiences or not, or from something they heard, whatever they wanted to do. And I thought that added another level of depth to the characters as well as bringing into question, like, was the rest of it improvised? Because there's a lot going on. You would expect somebody who shot a film this quickly with all this dialogue. You probably just said, hey, guys, just talk about these subject matters. But, um, no, as you pointed out, the, the, the front end is very, it's, it's highly uh, designed that way. Um, and and I, I don't think that is set out to go, well, the women will talk about these kind of driven ideas, and the men will talk about these kind of driven ideas. What I really set out to do was just the the man and the woman, Cassie and Oliver, uh, each have a respected best friend, and that best friend, while lovely, lovely and amusing BFFs, they are to them, they're a little scattered all over the place of what's taking their mm-hmm. concentration, because... Quite honestly, they're not interested in long-term relationships, individually speaking. And so they've also been listening to all the complaints that their friends are making. But they're also the kind of people who, as the film dictates with the title The Narcissist, you know, plural, they're going to be talking about everything except 
what the actual problem is. So even though the women ended up talking about certain things that were actually real in the relationship and uh, inclusive to the decision of what they might decide uh, individually, um, speaking like with Kathy, what she might choose to do in the end, she's still very far off, you know, subject from, hey, let's really look at what's going on. You have to make a decision by tomorrow and let's work this out. They're not doing that and neither is Oliver and um, yeah. Max. In fact, they're even further off, as you said, <laughs> the whole existence of life and Zach's, uh, uh, oh, sorry, Max's, uh, you know, sick, twisted mind of whatever he, you know, views the world as, like his own life. But I really wanted the reflection to be more between Oliver and Cassie's similarities, and so you could see why they were in a relationship together to begin with, even though you never really mm-hmm. get it together, maybe you do, I don't know. Don't want to spoil that one. <laughs> no, we and, don't. But Zach and, um, I mean, Max and uh, Letty were the opposite of them in a way, and each individually were similar to one another and very, both of them are so funny with, with giving, like, the more, not vulgar for shock value, but literally, they're so comfortable with the, with the absurd, um, vulgar and silly, over-the-top kind of dialogue that they say it without it coming off over the top. It's just natural. And um, I just really wanted to uh, have fun playing with these dialogues and, like you said, what men think about and what women think about. But that kind of came from a, just like a subconscious place as opposed to, um, well, this is exactly what a woman would say and this is exactly what a man would say. But it, it definitely came from a, I wanted the one conversation to lead the other conversation. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like they were having a conversation. The two couples were having conversations together, but not ever together. Right. And I have to say, yeah. what I really loved with the way the conversations and the subject matter went and the personas, I really could see Letty and Max with their out their absurdities and self-obsess and their own self-obsessiveness. I could see them as a couple. Mm-hmm. I could see Absolutely. I could see Max and Letty as a couple. The two of them are so engaging, and you really care. I was really very interested in what each of them was saying, because it was pretty yeah. clear what what Cassie and Oliver what the what the big issues were with them. But then to hear the responsiveness coming from Letty and Max. That I found so much fun to pay attention to. Great. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, like you said, uh, Cassie and Oliver are in a crisis, and they actually have an upcoming deadline that they have to make a decision by. So they're actually in the moment. They're really focused and wrapped up in their own exact problem. But, you know, Letty and Max are bleeding do whatever, because ultimately this problem doesn't affect them other than how great an annoyance it could be if their best friend keeps going on and on <laughs> about this decision. They're not willing to really own up to what they probably find their truth to be. But um, I agree. I think there would be an interesting uh, movie in, in seeing yes. Letty and, uh, and Max. Max's characters together, and almost in the sense of how uh, in when Harry McSally when mm-hmm. uh, Harry and Sally try to set up each other with Bruno Kirby and, and uh, Carrie Fisher, Carrie, uh, Fisher's characters, and then they end up together because they're just better suited. But uh, 
yeah, I just, you know, I, I wanted to allow New York to be like a big character and maybe the lead of the film. I wanted to allow the dialogue to be real and, and play in the way that the characters would play with each other and the actors themselves would relate to one another. You know, mm-hmm. it's tricky when you're acting in a film like this because there's so little around you to tell you that you're actually acting in a movie, even though you know right. I've memorized these lines and I'm walking down the street. But you're like, wait, I forget that the camera's, you know, all the way down the block and all these things. So the actors have a tendency to just kind of drink into their own, you know, being. So that brings an extra level of naturalism. And the whole film plays as like a time capsule for New York at mm-hmm. that exact time. I mean, you have the people walking around on their cell phones. These are just real people. Everyone's looking at their phone. I was sitting there so concerned I would look at the lens, but nobody's even concerned with anything around them because yeah. they're texting and tweeting or whatever they're doing on their phones. And, you know, or walking dogs or walking by and you pick up a little chatter or the bus honks or the, you know, I really wanted people to be able to get lost in the shots of just New York City itself where you could literally just daydream if that's what you wanted to do and be like, wow, I'm on the corner of, uh, uh, you know, uh, X and Y mm-hmm. and, and I'm just looking at that park that I'm familiar with or it'd be really nice to be there or wow, this is great, you know, whatever. And then, oh, yeah, that's right, there's a conversation going on that I'm also relating to or just find funny or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's just it was really just a pleasure to design and uh, to get to bring to the screen in the way that I felt it was on page or how I perceived it, you know, and kind of envisioned it to be. Um, yeah, just a real pleasure. I'm, I, I gotta tell you, I'm just tickled pink when when people get it as much as you got it. You know, it's just uh, it's um, it's really nice to hear. Well, and before I uh, before I let you go, and we bring yeah. and we bring Michelle Ramson back, um, who also yeah. directed herself in her film, uh, amazing, <laughs> and wrote it. Um, I have to I have to make mention of of course the music. The two jazz songs you have, oh my God, that 53-minute mark when you plug in a second song and you do this beautiful montage. I just am in love with with your opening, the opening title song, and that and the song you've got the 53-minute mark. Well, I thank you. I mean, you know, I'll let the audience figure out who they think my, you know, the influence I'm hitting head on is in this film. <laughs> and those specific songs are, well, the first one is kind of an inversion of a very exact scene that happens at a very fantastic, groundbreaking, kind of game-changing movie from the 70s. Yep. And um, with the black and white and the et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to give away too much, but, you know, when people watch it, hopefully they'll pick up on the fact that a lot of these Streets I chose were specifically made famous by another uh, filmmaker, uh, a very prolific one, and also commenting on my own work in the work, and the filmmaker in the film is commenting on his own work, and it's a very meta film, like you said, there's a film within the film, and then maybe even arguably the film within the film within the film when you see the ending, and, um, you know, because that's not exactly explanatory from my angle, but... um, I just think, uh, I, I hope people enjoy it like you like you did. And, and yeah, I love that part that you're talking about, the Ugh. second song she's in, and it's just, I love photographing New York. I love New York City. It's my favorite city in the world. I've always loved it the most. It's been in my blood since I was a baby. 
um, always wanted to be here. I'm here, you know, I've been here for many years now. But um, I walk around photographing New York City every day, and um, I just love it. I, I can't explain it. It's just it's you either get it or you don't. And it's for me, it's just it's everything. So I'm just so pleased to make this film and get to get it out in the world. As you know, it's out there right now on iTunes and Amazon. Yeah, it's, it's digital, on demand, Blu-ray. So, and everybody, yeah. can, you can go to yeah. iTunes and pre-order. You can do, it's there. Everyone can see it. It, can, it opened on the 27th. And yeah, I can, and if you go to the NarcissusMovie.com, it'll send you to all the links. And Gravitas Ventures, I should say, put it out again. Uh, they put out my last film. Yep. Very happy to be with them again. They're handling the worldwide distribution of this particular film. So, I'm doing a great job, and uh, yeah, I hope people check it out. And I, again, I'm just so glad that you had me on, Debbie. I don't want to always, Quincy. Always, yeah. I always have time for you. Come on. Oh, you know a that. Pleasure talking to you. Oh, and all right. Well, my friend, I will talk to you again soon. And in yeah, the thank you so much. Always. Always. And maybe as we get closer to the holidays, you'll come back, talk about it again. It'd be a perfect gift for people for the holidays to get a Blu-ray. Oh, that'd be great, yeah. Thanks so much, Quincy. Thank you, Debbie. Have a wonderful rest of the show and a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Quincy Rose, the narcissist. See it now. And now, the very patient and wonderful and marvelous Michelle Remsen is with us. <laughs> Hi, Debbie Lynn. So lovely to speak with you again. Oh, a joy, a joy to talk to you again, Michelle, and to have you back on the show. You and Quincy, two of two of my favorite indie filmmakers. Um, and Thanks. you both do it all. You produce, you write, you direct, you star in it, in your respective mm-hmm. films. He goes so far as editing. Um <laughs> I'm sure that, I stop there. I draw the line. <laughs> you draw you draw the line there. You draw the line there. But with your film, I'm so excited that we're going to talk about Toss It again because when you were here before and we talked about it, you were on the festival circuit. You now have distribution and it is going yes, out into the world for everyone <laughs> to be able to see. Yeah, we're very excited about that. It is a worldwide VOD, transactional VOD, meaning you can rent it um, on Amazon and iTunes and Google Play and Vimeo on demand literally around the world, (laughs) which is really cool because um, as uh, Annie G's, the publicist, pointed out, she's like, so out this is the old indie film model where you used to get maybe L.A., New York, you get two cities and Mm -hmm. you would hope it would catch on. But uh, now it's literally all across North America, everywhere from Australia to Zimbabwe, all on the same day. So um, it's a whole new model, which uh, I'm excited to see um, what that uh, does. You know, it's not just numbers so I get out of film debt, but it's also because everyone then at once can maybe spark a a conversation about these topics. Mm Mm-hmm. That women are right, men are generally wrong, and it's okay to be cynical. You know? Let's face it. See, and this is keeping right right in line with, you know, the, the BFF discussions in Quincy's movie, too. So, yeah, it, it's just out there. It's out there for everyone. <laughs> I think I, I try to be even-handed, as I say. You I are very... The, the, 
the men are the fixers. I mean, the women are the fixers and the nurturers, generally speaking. The men tend to, in this film, at least set up all the issues, and then the women try to correct it and fix it and sort things out. So that's why I think the film, in a lot of ways, is as much as about the male-female relationships, it's also really about the relationships between the women because they're sort of negotiating the new terrain. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and therefore, I think it, it makes uh, it for a good, you know, conversation opener for everyone to take a look at, you know, their own relationships and and uh, dynamics. And, um, you know, I try to make something that's entertaining and deep, you know, laugh and think <laughs> sort of is my approach. Well, I mean, what I love about Toss It, the first and foremost, besides the fact that it is very witty and it you do tackle some really deep things that people don't normally think about unless you actually stop and think about them uh but Mm -hmm. it is the dynamic and the relationship and chemistry between yourself and phil burke uh you play emily he plays finn and watching the two of you and how he get phil just gets these hapless looks on his face in character and you get this exasperated uh when you look at him and you just see his face or something comes out of his mouth and it's mm-hmm. just so rich and delicious to watch oh, this. And I, you know, and I asked Annie for a new link to the film in case it had been changed since I saw it. Um, and I loved it even more watching it again. Oh. Oh, uh, thank you. That makes you know, that makes me really happy. I always think that's such a good measure of a film of somebody wants to see it twice and enjoys it even more. So, um, I hope other people feel that way. Too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that, that I'm curious about is, you know, whereas we're so used to hearing about p- these indie films getting picked up by Gravitas, A24, Mar Vista Entertainment, something like that. You've got Journeyman Pictures picked up, toss it to distribute. And what I find interesting is Journeyman is based in the United Kingdom. And the sensibilities of humor are typically very different between British audiences, American audiences. So I find it interesting that this would appeal to and the British company would see the the universal humor and appeal of this film. Well, I was very... Uh lucky and, and fortunate to have uh, been the Writers Guild of America East, and we were having a women's salon, and Liz Warbaugh, who had a documentary with Journeyman Pictures, um, offered to recommend my movie to um, that company. They also have a new division called Journeyman Features, which mm-hmm. is actually the new narrative um, arm of of Journeyman. Doc, and yeah. And they're the ones who uh, picked it up and offered the worldwide distribution, and she's said they tend to underpromise and overdeliver. <laughs> so um and so far they've been they've been doing that. They've been lovely. Um the women I've been speaking with totally get the film. I think as far as the differences of humor, I don't know. I, I sometimes think, you know, the English like a good, witty, smart, you know, dark hearted comedy. Mm-hmm. Um some people have compared the humor to like flea bags, so I think there's definitely something out there in the ether about that um so you know and i think the movie has you know beside the witty banter it also has as you pointed out like some of the screwball slapstick as well so i think um there's i think there's you know i think both markets could 
like, and hopefully all around the world will like it. But I think that might be why um, they picked it up as well, you know, for those reasons. You know, how difficult, how challenging was this this whole distribution journey? Because so, you know, independent filmmakers, yay, I made a film. Yay, I'm in festivals. Now <laughs> what do I do? Yes, the landscape has changed so much yes. since the last time. I guess it was in process when we first... Yeah, but, but now um, it's totally, just in the past, you know, a yeah, little I, over a year, yeah. I was having a drink show, and I was some, you know, gentleman who'd been in the business for a long time and used to, you know, sort of fun slates, and they're even there. These guys used to make the decisions, and they're like, I don't know either, <laughs> you know. It's a new landscape, and the disruptors are, you know, it's like Netflix and Amazon have come in and all the other streaming platforms because viewing habits have changed so much. You know, there's so much available at home. Um, there's also, you know, the bigger picture of studios generally backing just large, you know, IP franchises, you know, event movies and festivals making generally smaller, sometimes, you know, really important, but, you know, sort of darker, serious films that sort of come out in the fall. And um, the interesting thing is um, for like a movie like mine that's entertaining and deep, that's you know, where does that go? Because the studios rarely finance them anymore. And so yeah. I'm really hoping that this new model of, you know, worldwide VOD day and date, and hopefully with Andy's help, we're going to get some press on it and get, you know, the word out so people can sort of just see it for themselves without having to wait for a studio to back it or to be selected by a festival, sort of direct to consumer. <laughs> so, um, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing is with, you know, when you're talking festivals, uh, you know, number one, it's a crapshoot whether you get into a festival. Number two, it's a crapshoot where that festival is located. Number three, it's a crapshoot what kind of press or exposure that festival has to the local communities who might come to see a film. Uh, you know, I'm still lamenting the fact that L.A. lost. We no longer have L.A. Film Festival. I know, I can't believe that. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't know the decision behind that, but that's very much, you know, yeah, festivals are very, um, yeah, like you said, it's a crapshoot. I mean, you just don't know which festival is going to be the right one if you get into it and, you know, are the forces going to line up as far as, like, who's there, is the audience there and loving it, you know, with that screening. You know, it's, it's a lot of uh, pressure put on, you know, one or two screenings instead of, sort of taken it directly to the audience, which I always feel like my odds are good mm -hmm. <laughs> with crowds. When I've done readings or screenings, I always love to hear, you know, the laughter, but also people coming up afterwards go, wow, thank you for taking us there and really, you know, talking about what it brings up. And I just, um, I like it. I just think, you know, there are different ways to get there. And so now there's sort of a third option, I think. But see, I think that's, this is where you may have an advantage over many other filmmakers is your stage experience. Because you have been able to, time and time again, test the waters as to audience reaction. Exactly. Yeah, that really helps, especially with comedy, because, you know, you have to have the laughter, I think, you know, just to sort of know where it is and to try to, you know, edit around that so you can have some sense of pace and... Um, especially if you're theatrically screening, so, you know, there's room for laughter in it. You know, on streaming, you can cut tighter because not as many people are going to be in the room watching it with you, so you don't have to wait for the laughter to die down. But it certainly helps with the pacing and the dynamic. And I always like doing um, readings of projects, you know, with a live audience or a small gathering just so we can all 
get a sense of how it plays and if the story really works before I turn and uh, put it in front of a camera because um, the the human element is is key to give you confidence about you know the shape of it and and how it's going to um, play with people. Mm-hmm. And t- and you have the benefit with Toss It. It started as a stage play. You started this as it a did. stage play. Yeah, it very much started as, which I've talked about, you know, it was a little one-act play that I wrote for my theater company, you know, Stevedore, the Confederacy, which has not been, I never produced it, and then I read it in Naked Angels, and people loved it and wanted to know what happened next, and that sort of turned it, <laughs> I just sort of started answering the questions and, and writing it, and then uh, doing production, uh, you know, readings at um, 92Y Tribeca and Ensemble Studio Theater, where I'm a member, and so, and at Access Theater, so all these you know, companies and friends have helped, you know, really help me hone it, you know, between notes and feedback and, you know, figure out also then you can also get to kind of audition some of the actors because if they just nail the part, um, you kind of, your casting process is really shortened. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious, and, and I didn't ask you this last time you were on the show, but how long were you doing you know, tooling the stage version of this and doing readings of this on stage before you said, all right, I'm going to make this into a film? Well, it was sort of, you know, like I said, a bit of an accident. You know, it was just sort of when someone asked me to, like, bring in something to read, I was like, well, here's this thing. I haven't done anything with it. And then it sort of, and people kept giving me another opportunity, like, hey, do you want to bring in something to this? And so um, it was kind of over a few years and but it was also while I was working on larger film scripts which what I now hope will you know toss it will be the door opener for so I can get back to making bills but they were much larger <laughs> budgets and so it wasn't sort of a direct line like I'm going to do this and then immediately film it it was just suddenly I was like well let's look around if if it was hard to get money for the bigger ones let's make something small to prove you know a I can do it and deliver on time and on budget and just sort of showcase you know all my filmmaking and writing skills and so I know it's a long answer but it was a few years <laughs> and uh and then once I did the reading it was just a few months when I decided to make it into um a movie I you know I, I did a reading invited people to go like you know do you, do you think this works as a film and um and then and then we started moving forward you know as a film what was the biggest challenge for you as a filmmaker in turn, taking this from stage and turning it into a film, because the you know the the play you you shoot it, it encompasses a lot of different cities, and we have that mm-hmm. in the film as well. But on stage, you just change out your background, or not even you just change your key lights, and the actors perform. But here, you actually mm-hmm. have to go to locations. Create locations, and you got a bunch of them. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm curious how this how this cinematic transfer was for you. <laughs> well, the secret is the whole movie was shot in New York. <laughs> um, I found amazing locations that looked like Los Angeles and Vegas and Philadelphia. And um, like the main line of Philadelphia, and and so uh, it was all very carefully, a lot of you know location scouting ahead of time, a lot of scheduling uh, to make it um, fit. And 
that was how we did it. And we also had the weather, thankfully, you know, cooperating that we had gorgeous weather. We wanted to be outside. We had sun when we were supposed to be in L.A. <laughs> so um, that was how uh, I, I pulled it off. It was just, you know, again, the greatest challenge was really just the timing because we had so little time. But based on the budget, had a great crew, but they were available for two weeks. And that's why it was just, you know, a real uh, – it, it was run very, you know – really tight schedule but i laid it all out and talked everything over with the dp and we had all the shot lists and um and great ad and everybody just because they knew their part so well also just sort of came in and delivered and so that's how we wound up doing five cities in 12 days (laughs) well and i personally think that the locations you chose to represent the main line in philly are perfect Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, I was really uh, pleased with that. One is like the end of, you know, my street and, you know, <clears throat> up on the Upper West Side of New York for some of the exteriors. And then the, the house, which mm-hmm. you see in the second half, was uh, my cousin's, which was, you know, a godsend because it was free. That's <laughs> what family's for. Beautiful. <laughs> and it really, uh, you know, I thought encapsulated the American dream, you know, with like this lovely home and a pool. And, you know, it was also because of the design of the home, because it was sort of that open post and beam structure made it really nice and easy for shooting because the camera could be, you know, across or move around a corner without it being everybody sort of stuck inside a tight little room. Mm-hmm. So um, it also gave me yards of time to lay out the shot list, you know, knowing I was going to be able to work in that environment. You know, I could really think about um, interesting angles and how to uh, do it ahead of time again just so we could hit the ground running when we had everybody, you know, on uh, shooting during mm-hmm. production. And I like that you mentioned, you know, the interior of the house and, and being able to navigate in there with the way it was constructed. Because, one, if you had been in an actual house on the main line, uh, like the old Kelly house or, or anything out there, you would not have mm-hmm. room to navigate around anything. <laughs> no. And they're generally much more traditional, like rooms with four walls and a door. And... Um, you know, I've seen films shot like that, and it's it's really tight. And sometimes I feel like you can tell how constricted it feels, mm-hmm. and you just sort of want to get out of the room. And I just didn't want that feeling. I really wanted, um, you know, uh, the flow. And also, you know, thematically, by the time the story gets to that point, you know, it's interesting because everyone's sort of perceptions, you know, going with the title are tossed, right. and things are much more fluid. And so it really was a, a lovely uh, synchronicity of space and the theme. Also. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and it works so beautifully because what your what your DP, what your cinematographer George Barnes does, and you were shooting with the Ari Alexa, I think, um, mm-hmm. which gives you it's not overly huge. It gives you navigation room, so you feel the fluidity of the room, but then you rely on what George does, framing and coming in for a close up to capture emotion to get a claustrophobic moment, so to speak, for Emily, um, mm-hmm. while still keeping the world around her flowing and moving. And Yeah, yeah. He... Sorry, go ahead. No, and I, I just, I love the way that the two of you worked and designed that and the way that George shot that. And then you brought yeah, it in, George... and then Lorna brought it in, brought it home through the editing. Yes, George and Lorna have long time worked together for years, and so that was also great. And I think I mentioned before she um, also sort of doubled as the DIT, so she was on set every day, so she really knew oh. the movie really well. And so, um, and she also they have George has like a 
mobile editing suite inside a customized sort of van truck. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. we could basically see if we covered everything, you know, before we moved on, because sometimes locations we only had for a few hours. Uh, but it also made um, her so familiar with the editing, and we also saw if we liked the coverage, you could always quickly go back and then get another uh, angle. But we were very clear about, you know, let's do a master, a mid, and close-up, a print match, and everything. And because George owns all that, our Alexa gear, he's intimately familiar with it, so he could work really quickly. He had a really lean crew who also had worked with for years, including Omkar Gaussian, who was the, the, the gaffer. So the lighting is just so... Um, Natural, but you know, specific when we needed it, and uh, without it looking like it's been lit, you know, because mm-hmm. I wanted it to feel very much like these are real people. So everyone, when they watch the movie, gets a real sense of, you know, the realness of this, rather than this isn't a cutesy, you know, brightly lit rom com, you know, nor is it some sort of moody, dark, you know. Yeah, um, it's it's very drama, natural. You know, it, it's very natural. Yeah, and that was one of the first questions they asked me, and I was like, yeah, let's, yeah, I want it to look real, and so. Um, we got that, and I think, but also artfully, you know, done as well. It doesn't feel just like like a doc, you know. It's, it's mm-hmm. this lovely blend of I think a well shot. I mean, I always think the best movies are the ones where you aren't even noticing the camera work, you know, because then you're not sort of like it's not drawing attention to itself. You're mm-hmm. really, if it's well done, it's taking you into the story. And I think um, I think George does that in, in Spades, and and so I'm. Uh, really happy with it because people like the way it looks, but it's um, it's not. Um, it's unobtrusive. Like I said, exactly. It's, it's very unobtrusive. Well, I would be remiss not to ask you about your little jaunt to Cannes. <laughs> Indie filmmakers do not typically get to go to Cannes, and wh- what uh, is that experience like? Ah, uh, it is wild. It is sort of like being in a Fellini movie. <laughs> so, you know, it's beautiful and and dramatic with like all the mountains around you and the and the sea and um it's the streets are just filled with, you know, all sorts of, you know, international stars and press and locals and it's it's a great fantastic festival, you know, that's sort of you know, this long tradition. So I was very thrilled to be part of it and to sort of experience, you know, what you've heard about for years. Um, my international sales agent was take, was going to be there with it, you know, in the Marche to film. And so I thought, well, why not, if I can, go over and see if I can, you know, uh, make some hay of this. And Annie Jeeves, you know, the uh, publicist who I was able to hire with the New York Women in Film and Television marketing grant happened to be also working um head of PR for the American Pavilion. So it was this lovely, again, synchronicity. She's like, I'll happily set up some interviews and, and see what we can do over there. And we did a little event at the Pavilion as well for press and in uh, others in industry. And um, it was wonderful to sort of see the European model, you know, where it's this mm-hmm. wonderful blend of, like, art and commerce, where sometimes I think festivals over here can get so into the art, you know, that – over there, it's sort of nice for people are refreshingly there to do business, but also yeah. they're they're also incredibly into the art. You know, being Europeans, they have like film commissions, and they really talk about you know art as you know film as an art form. Where um, in America, it sometimes feels like there's you know sort of a split <laughs> yeah. know, between the marketplace and and uh, the festival loop. And this is, it was very cool to experience uh, both of them. And also, you know, it's French and the food and the drink is wonderful and the people are lovely. So it was very cool. 
Yeah, and he posted plenty of pictures about the food and drink. So I think you know, <laughs> you know, I think we all we all we all get that part. Would you say though, for uh, for an independent filmmaker, would you say it's worth it for them? ponying up the money out of their own pocket to go and experience this, to get the lay of this land? Uh, well, I suppose it would depend on their project. If mm-hmm. they thought um, it would have a strong European um, market, because I think there's definitely a, a lot of that. You'll get to meet a lot of the European players there, which is um Interesting, you know, because some of their tastes and they have, you know, like, again, like film commissions and different buyers than what we generally run into at the American festivals. Um, so possibly, you know, yes, but, but though, you know, there are American buyers there as, as well. Right. But it's, um, I think it'd be more about where you think you know, your film would, would stand, you know, or play mm-hmm. internationally, you know, and everybody sort of knows, those, you know, there are certain genre types that, you know, tend to work you know, better than others if it's, you know, action or if it, you know, or if it's um, more physical comedy or, you know, if there's not, it's not, it's more picture driven, you know, I know sure. mine's very verbal. So, um, but unfortunately English <laughs> is spoken a lot. So, um, you know, it, it, it hopefully it will do well internationally as well. So I guess the long answer is I think it really depends on the filmmaker if they want to uh, give it a shot, if they really want to explore sort of the international marketplace, you know, and just to sort of see um, for themselves what that's like. And they also get to make some great, you know, contacts and meet some like international press contacts too, which I hope, you know, will say some kind words about the film overseas, since it'll be, you know, opening everywhere. So there's lots of different, you know, pluses to it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not just specifically selling the movie. There's all sorts of connections to, to be made. And I guess, you know, if you can go in like I did and got, like, an Airbnb, which, you know, if you book long enough ahead of time, it's not bad, and you try and get some, you know, cheap flights. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I think you can have a wonderful time there and learn a lot. And, of course, the glo- don't worry about the global audience, because, whether they speak any of them speak English or not, they're going to die just seeing the reactions, the facial expressiveness between <laughs> you and Phil. They're going to get it. Oh. They're going to get it. So. Oh, <laughs> trust me. You defy oh. language barriers with your facial expressiveness, you and Phil. So. Oh, well, that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> Thank you. So, when is this available? Is it September seventeenth? So it's next Tuesday. Everybody, next Tuesday. everybody, can see toss it for themselves. Ah, exactly. It's going to be on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Vimeo on demand. Um, and if they go to uh, tossitthemovie.com, we'll direct them to Journeyman Features, or go directly to Journeyman Features, and you'll find toss it there. And then on the 17th, all the links will be live there for um, folks to rent and or buy it. Well, ideally, I want them to buy it, but we'll we'll take renting. <laughs> we'll take renting. You know. Ah, Michelle, unfortunately, we are all out of time for the whole show today. I loved having you back again. You're so much fun. Oh. Oh my gosh, you are a wonderful interview, and I just love your enthusiasm for the movie. I'm so, so glad and so happy to be back. And I will love to, you know, keep you posted on how it, you know, um, 
how it goes in the coming months, you know, with this new model. Oh, absolutely. I'm really curious about how this new model works Um, because it is still in the infancy and in the, I'd say, call it experimental stages. So Yeah, it definitely is. So we'll see how this transactional video on demand goes, and then um, it will be on Prime at a later date, but mm-hmm. we're waiting to see how this um, TVOD goes first before we move it um, over to Prime, Amazon Prime. You're a guinea pig. So that might be me. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. You're a guinea I pig. I don't mind. Ah, <laughs> uh, Michelle, you have to come back on the show again. You have to make something <laughs> else. You have to make something else and come to. back. Ah, well, thank that's you. the plan. I'll keep you posted on that as well. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you, thank you, thank you, my friend. And I will talk to you soon. Oh, you're so welcome. All right, take care. Thanks, Michelle. Bye-bye. Bye, Debbie. And that was Michelle Remsen talking about Toss It. You can get Toss It next Tuesday. Big thanks also to Quincy Rose. You can see his film, The Narcissist or Narcissist, however you choose to say it. It is out now on iTunes, digital, VOD, and Blu-ray. And, of course, I can't encourage you enough to go see, it's in limited theatrical release, Official Secrets, starring Kira Knightley, uh, Ray Fiennes, Matt Smith, Matthew Good, who I can never get enough of, uh, Reese Iffens, and... It's an important film for our time, and it is so exceedingly well well done. You'll be riveted from beginning to end. That is all the time we have for today. We're a couple minutes over. Uh, Sorry, Pam. Uh, But we'll be back next week. We've got more guests next week. As I said, we're booking in November now. So I think I have two slots open between now and November. Uh, But until then... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.